Section 13 of Lovecraft's Influences and Favorites. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The White People by Arthur Machin. Prologue Sorcery and sanctity, said Ambrose. These are the only realities. Each is in ecstasy, a withdrawal from the common life. Cotgrave listened, interested. He had been brought by a friend to this moldering house in a northern suburb, through an old garden to the room where Ambrose the recluse dozed and dreamed over his books. Yes, he went on, magic is justified of her children. There are many, I think, who eat dry crusts and drink water with a joy infinitely sharper than anything within the experience of the practical epicure. You are speaking of the saints? Yes, and of the sinners, too. I think you are falling into the very general error of confining the spiritual world to the supremely good. But the supremely wicked, necessarily, have their portion in it. The merely carnal, sensual man can no more be a great sinner than he can be a great saint. Most of us are just indifferent, mixed-up creatures. We muddle through the world without realizing the meaning and the inner sense of things, and, consequently, our wickedness and our goodness are alike second-rate, unimportant. And you think the great sinner, then, will be an ascetic as well as the great saint? Great people of all kinds forsake the imperfect copies and go to the perfect originals. I have no doubt but that many of the very highest among the saints have never done a good action, using the words in their ordinary sense. And, on the other hand, there have been those who have sounded the very depths of sin, who all their lives have never done an ill deed. He went out of the room for a moment, and Cotgrave, in high delight, turned to his friend and thanked him for the introduction. He's grand, he said. I never saw that kind of lunatic before. Ambrose returned with more whiskey and helped the two men in a liberal manner. He abused the teetotal sect with ferocity, as he handed the seltzer and, pouring out a glass of water for himself, was about to resume his monologue when Cotgrave broke in. I can't stand it, you know, he said. Your paradoxes are too monstrous. A man may be a great sinner and yet never do anything sinful. Come! You're quite wrong, said Ambrose. I never make paradoxes. I wish I could. I merely said that a man may have an exquisite taste in Romane Conti, and yet never have even smelt four ale. That's all. And it's more like a truism than a paradox, isn't it? Your surprise at my remark is due to the fact that you haven't realized what sin is. Oh yes, there is a sort of connection between sin with the capital letter and actions which are commonly called sinful with murder, theft, adultery, and so forth. Much the same connection that there is between the A, B, C, and fine literature. But I believe that the misconception, it is all but universal, arises in great measure from our looking at the matter through social spectacles. We think that a man who does evil to us, and to his neighbors, must be very evil. So he is, from a social standpoint. But can't you realize that evil in its essence is a lonely thing, a passion of the solitary individual soul? Really, the average murderer, qua murderer, is not by any means a sinner in the true sense of the word. 
he is simply a wild beast that we have to get rid of to save our own necks from his knife i should class him rather with tigers than with sinners it seems a little strange i think not the murderer murders not from positive qualities but from negative ones he lacks something which non-murderers possess evil of course is wholly positive only it is on the wrong side you may believe me that sin in its proper sense is very rare it is probable that there have been far fewer sinners than saints yes your standpoint is all very well for practical social purposes we are naturally inclined to think that a person who is very disagreeable to us must be a very great sinner it is very disagreeable to have one's pocket picked and we pronounce the thief to be a very great sinner in truth he is merely an undeveloped man he cannot be a saint of course but he may be and often is an infinitely better creature than thousands who have never broken a single commandment he is a great nuisance to us i admit and we very properly lock him up if we catch him but between his troublesome and unsocial action and evil though the connection is of the weakest it was getting very late the man who had brought cotgrave had probably heard all this before since he assisted with a bland and judicious smile but cotgrave began to think that his lunatic was turning into a sage do you know he said you interest me immensely you think then that we do not understand the real nature of evil no i don't think we do we overestimate it and we underestimate it we take the very numerous infractions of our social bylaws the very necessary and very proper regulations which keep the human company together and we get frightened at the prevalence of sin and evil but this is really nonsense take theft for example have you any horror at the thought of robin hood of the highland caterans of the seventeenth century of the moss troopers of the company promoters of our day then on the other hand we underrate evil we attach such an enormous importance to the sin of meddling with our pockets and our wives that we have quite forgotten the awfulness of real sin and what is sin said cotgrave i think i must reply to your question by another what would your feelings be seriously if your cat or your dog began to talk to you and to dispute with you in human accents you would be overwhelmed with horror i am sure of it and if the roses in your garden sang a weird song you would go mad and suppose the stones in the road began to swell and grow before your eyes and if the pebble that you noticed at night had shot out stony blossoms in the morning well these examples may give you some notion of what sin really is look here said the third man hitherto placid you two seem pretty well wound up but i'm going home i've missed my tram and i shall have to walk Ambrose and Cotgrave seemed to settle down more profoundly when the other had gone out into the early misty morning in the pale light of the lamps. "'You astonish me,' said Cotgrave. "'I had never thought of that. If that is really so, one must turn everything upside down. Then the essence of sin really is—' "'In the taking of heaven by storm, it seems to me,' said Ambrose. "'It appears to me that it is simply an attempt—' to penetrate into another and higher sphere in a forbidden manner you can understand why it is so rare there are few indeed who wish to penetrate into other spheres higher or lower in ways allowed or forbidden men in the mass are amply content with life as they find it 
therefore there are few saints and sinners in the proper sense are fewer still and men of genius who partake sometimes of each character are rare also yes on the whole it is perhaps harder to be a great sinner than a great saint there is something profoundly unnatural about sin is that what you mean exactly holiness requires as great or almost as great an effort but holiness works on lines that were natural once it is an effort to recover the ecstasy that was before the fall but sin is an effort to gain the ecstasy and the knowledge that pertain alone to angels and in making this effort man becomes a demon i told you that the mere murderer is not therefore a sinner that is true but the sinner is sometimes a murderer guilles de Rays is an instance so you see that while the good and the evil are unnatural to man as he is now to man the social civilized being evil is unnatural in a much deeper sense than good the saint endeavors to recover a gift which he has lost the sinner tries to obtain something which was never his in brief he repeats the fall but are you a catholic said cotgrave yes i am a member of the persecuted anglican church then how about those texts which seem to reckon as sin that which you would set down as a mere trivial dereliction yes but in one place the word sorcerers comes in the same sentence doesn't it that seems to me to give the key note consider can you imagine for a moment that a false statement which saves an innocent man's life is a sin no very good then it is not the mere liar who is excluded by those words it is above all the sorcerers who use the material life who use the failings incidental to material life as instruments to obtain their infinitely wicked ends and let me tell you this our higher senses are so blunted we are so drenched with materialism that we should probably fail to recognize real wickedness if we ever encountered it but shouldn't we experience a certain horror a terror such as you hinted we would experience if a rose tree sang in the mere presence of an evil man we should if we were natural children and women feel this horror you speak of even animals experience it but with most of us convention and civilization and education have blinded and deafened and obscured the natural reason no sometimes we may recognize evil by its hatred of the good one doesn't need much penetration to guess at the influence which dictated quite unconsciously the blackwood review of keats but this is purely incidental and as a rule i suspect that the hierarchs of tophet pass quite unnoticed or perhaps in certain cases as good but mistaken men but you used the word unconscious just now of keats's reviewers is wickedness ever unconscious always it must be so it is like holiness and genius in this as in other points it is a certain rapture or ecstasy of the soul a transcendent effort to surpass the ordinary bounds so surpassing these it surpasses also the understanding the faculty that takes note of that which comes before it no a man may be infinitely and horribly wicked and never suspect it but i tell you evil in this its certain and true sense is rare and i think it's growing rarer i'm trying to get a hold of it all said cotgrave from what you say i gather that 
the true evil differs generically from that which we call evil? Quite so. There is, no doubt, an analogy between the two, a resemblance such as enables us to use, quite legitimately, such terms as the foot of the mountain and the leg of the table. And, sometimes, of course, the two speak, as it were, in the same language. The rough miner, or puddler, the untrained, undeveloped tiger-man, heated by a quart or two above his usual measure, comes home and kicks his irritating and injudicious wife to death. He is a murderer, and Gilles de Reyes was a murderer. But you see the gulf that separates the two? The word, if I may so speak, is accidentally the same in each case, but the meaning is utterly different. It is flagrant Hobson Jobson to confuse the two. Or rather, it is as if one supposed that Juggernaut and the Argonauts had something to do etymologically with one another. And no doubt, the same weak likeness or analogy runs between all the social sins and the real spiritual sins, and in some cases, perhaps, the lesser may be schoolmasters to lead one on to the greater, from the shadow to the reality. If you are anything of a theologian, you will see the importance of all of this. I am sorry to say, remarked Cotgrave, that I have devoted very little of my time to theology. Indeed, I have often wondered on what grounds theologians have claimed the title of science of sciences for their favorite study, since the theological books I have looked into have always seemed to me to be concerned with feeble and obvious pieties, or with the kings of Israel and Judah. I do not care to hear about those kings, Ambrose grinned. We must try to avoid theological discussion, he said. I perceive that you would be a bitter disputant. But perhaps the dates of the kings have as much to do with theology as the hobnails of the murderous puddler with evil. Then, to return to our main subject, you think that sin is an esoteric occult thing? Yes. It is the infernal miracle as holiness is the supernal. Now and then it is raised to such a pitch that we entirely fail to suspect its existence. It is like the note of the great pedal pipes of the organ, which is so deep that we cannot hear it. In other cases, it may lead to the lunatic asylum, or to still stranger issues. But you must never confuse it with mere social misdoing. Remember how the apostle, speaking of the other side, distinguishes between charitable actions and charity. And as one may give all one's goods to the poor, and yet lack charity, so remember, one may avoid every crime, and yet be a sinner. Your psychology is very strange to me, said Contgrave. But I confess I like it, and I suppose that one might fairly deduce from your premises the conclusion that the real sinner might very possibly strike the observer as a harmless personage enough? Certainly, because the true evil has nothing to do with the social life or social laws, or if it has, only incidentally and accidentally. It is a lonely passion of the soul, or a passion of the lonely soul, whichever you like. If, by chance, we understand it, and grasp its full significance, then indeed it will fill us with horror and with awe. But this emotion is widely distinguished from the fear and the disgust with which we regard the ordinary criminal, since this latter is largely or entirely founded on the regard which we have for our own skins or purses. We hate a murderer, because we know that we should hate to be murdered, nor to have any one that we like murdered. So, on the other side, we venerate the saints, but we don't like 
them as we like our friends, can you persuade yourself that you would have enjoyed St. Paul's company? Do you think that you and I would have got on with Sir Galahad? So, with the sinners as with the saints, if you met a very evil man and recognized his evil, he would, no doubt, fill you with horror and awe. But there's no reason why you should dislike him. On the contrary, it is quite possible that if you could succeed in putting the sin out of your mind, you might find the sinner capital company, and in a little while you might have to reason yourself back into horror. Still, how awful it is. If the roses and the lilies suddenly sang on this coming morning, if the furniture began to move in procession, as in de Maupassant's tale, I am glad you have come back to that comparison, said Cotgrave, because I wanted to ask you what it is that corresponds in humanity to these imaginary feats of inanimate things. In a word, what is sin? You have given me, I know, an abstract definition, but I should like a concrete example. I told you it was very rare, said Ambrose, who appeared willing to avoid the giving of a direct answer. The materialism of the age, which has done a good deal to suppress sanctity, has done perhaps more to suppress evil. We find the earth so very comfortable that we have no inclination either for ascents or descents. It would seem as if the scholar who decided to specialize in Tophet would be reduced to purely antiquarian researches. No paleontologist could show you a live pterodactyl. And yet you, I think, have specialized, and I believe that your researches have descended to our modern times. You are really interested, I see. Well, I confess that I have dabbled a little, and if you like I can show you something that bears on the very curious subjects we have been discussing. Ambrose took a candle and went away to a far, dim corner of the room. Cotgrave saw him open a venerable bureau that stood there, and from some secret recess he drew out a parcel, and came back to the window where they had been sitting. Ambrose undid a wrapping of paper, and produced a green pocketbook. You will take care of it, he said. Don't leave it lying about. It is one of the choicer pieces in my collection, and I should be very sorry if it were lost. He fondled the faded binding. I knew the girl who wrote this, he said. When you read it, you will see how it illustrates the talk we have had tonight. There is a sequel, too, but I won't talk of that. There was an odd article in one of the reviews some months ago, he began again, with the air of a man who changes the subject. It was written by a doctor. Dr. Corin, I think it was the name. He says that a lady, watching her little girl playing at the drawing room window, suddenly saw the heavy sash give away and fall on the child's fingers. The lady fainted, I think, but at any rate... The doctor was summoned, and when he had dressed the child's wounded and maimed fingers, he was summoned to the mother. She was groaning with pain, and it was found that three fingers of her hand, corresponding with those that had been injured on the child's hand, were swollen and inflamed. And later, in the doctor's language, purulent sloughing set in. Ambrose still handled delicately the green volume. Well, here it is, he said at last parting with difficulty, it seemed, from his treasure. You will bring it back as soon as you have read it, he said as they went out into the hall, into the old garden, faint with the odor of white lilies. There was a broad red band in the east as Cotgrave turned to go, and from the high ground where he stood he saw that awful spectacle of London in a dream.
The Green Book The Morocco binding of the book was faded, and the color had grown faint, but there were no visible stains, nor bruises, nor marks of usage. The book looked as if it had been brought on a visit to London some seventy or eighty years ago, and somehow been forgotten and suffered to lie away out of sight. There was an old, delicate, lingering odor about it, such an odor as sometimes haunts an ancient piece of furniture for a century or more. The end papers inside the binding were oddly decorated with colored patterns and faded gold. It looked small, but the paper was fine, and there were many leaves, closely covered with minute, painfully formed characters. I found this book, the manuscript began, in a drawer in the old bureau that stands on the landing. It was a very rainy day, and I could not go out. So in the afternoon, I got a candle and rummaged in the bureau. Nearly all the drawers were full of old dresses, but one of the small ones looked empty, and I found this book hidden right at the back. I wanted a book like this, so I took it to write in. It is full of secrets. I have a great many other books of secrets I have written, hidden in a safe place, and I am going to write here many of the old secrets and some new ones, but there are some I shall not put down at all. I must not write down the real names of the days and months which I found out a year ago, nor the way to make the Aklo letters or the Qian language or the great beautiful circles, nor the Mao games, nor the chief songs. I may write something about all these things, but not the way to do them, for peculiar reasons. And I must not say who the nymphs are, or the doles, or Jilo, or what Vulas mean. All these are most secret secrets, and I am glad when I remember what they are, and how many wonderful languages I know. But there are some things that I call the secrets of the secrets of the secrets that I dare not think of unless I am quite alone. And then I shut my eyes and put my hands over them and whisper the word, and the Alala comes. I only do this at night in my room or in certain woods that I know. But I must not describe them, as they are secret woods. Then there are the ceremonies, which are all of them important, but some are more delightful than others. There are the white ceremonies, and the green ceremonies, and the scarlet ceremonies. The scarlet ceremonies are the best. But there is only one place where they can be performed properly, though there is a very nice imitation which I have done in other places. Besides these... I have the dances, and the comedy, and I have done the comedy sometimes when the others were looking, and they didn't understand anything about it. I was very little when I first knew about these things. When I was very small, and Mother was alive, I can remember remembering things before that, only it has all got confused. But I remember when I was five or six I heard them talking about me when they thought I wasn't noticing. They were saying how queer I was a year or two before, and how Nurse had called my mother to come and listen to me talking all to myself, and I was saying words that nobody could understand. I was speaking the zoo language, but I only remember a very few of the words, as it was about the little white faces that used to look at me when I was lying in my cradle. They used to talk to me, and I learnt their language and talked to them in about some great white place where they lived, where the trees and the grass were all white, and there were white hills as high up as the moon, and a cold wind. I have often dreamt of it afterwards, but the faces went away when I was very little. But a wonderful thing happened when I was about five. My nurse was carrying me on her shoulder, 
there was a field of yellow corn, and we went through it. It was very hot. Then we came to a path through a wood, and a tall man came after us, and went with us till we came to a place where there was a deep pool, and it was very dark and shady. Nurse put me down on the soft moss under a tree, and she said, She can't get to the pond now. So they left me there, and I sat quite still and watched, and out of the water and out of the wood came two wonderful white people, and they began to play and dance and sing. They were a kind of creamy white, like the old ivory figure in the drawing room. One was a beautiful lady with kind, dark eyes, and a grave face and long black hair, and she smiled such a strange, sad smile at the other, who laughed and came to her. They played together and danced round and round the pool, and they sang a song till I fell asleep. Nurse woke me up when she came back, and she was looking something like the lady had looked. So I told her all about it, and asked her why she looked like that. At first she cried, and then she looked very frightened and turned quite pale. She put me down on the grass and stared at me, and I could see she was shaking all over. Then she said I had been dreaming, but I knew I hadn't. Then she made me promise not to say a word about it to anybody. And if I did, I should be thrown into the black pit. I was not frightened at all, though Nurse was, and I never forgot about it, because when I shut my eyes and it was quite quiet, and I was all alone, I could see them again, very faint and far away, but very splendid, and little bits of the song they sang came into my head. But I couldn't sing it. End of The White People Part 1 Recording by Ian Verley